Hello and welcome to this edition of the DMZ America podcast. It is Saturday, September 11th, 2021. I'm Scott Stantis coming to you from the right. And from the left, I'm Ted Rawl. 20 years ago today. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Bumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. We have no idea how many were on board or what is what the extent of the injuries are right now. We are. Uh, we have, I understand, an eyewitness on the phone right now. Sir. So that was 20 years ago today. Ted, you were, work, were you working in Manhattan at the time? I was living in Manhattan. I was uh, self-employed, uh, but I wasn't. Uh, in Manhattan when the uh, first plane hit. Where were you? I was on a train uh, in New Jersey on my way to Philadelphia. Uh, I left uh, about, uh, my train was about eight o'clock in the morning out of Penn Station. And uh, I was near Trenton, New Jersey on my way to Philadelphia. Um, My um, friends and I had uh, decided to co-found an alt-weekly newspaper called Brooklyn Weekly. It would have been the only alt-weekly newspaper in Brooklyn, which we thought was a good business idea. And we had successfully pitched it to an investor in Philadelphia who owned uh, a chain of regional newspapers there. And we were expecting to pick up a funding check for $1.5 million on 9-11. Uh, it turns out Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed did us a big favor because uh, probably if we'd gone <laughs> forward, uh, the Brooklyn Weekly probably would have, you know, you know that's not a quote you hear every day, right? Um, <laughs> the, but, but probably this, pa- this paper would have probably gone under uh, in the big print advertising alt-weekly meltdown of the early 2000s. But we didn't know that at the time. It did seem like a good idea. And we sat in, so we ended up continuing to Philadelphia. As we walked to the, our meeting destination, there were people listening to the car, their car radios gathered around, listening to other people's car radios. We walked by the Liberty Bell Park and the National Park Service was closing off the bell. And that was my first official joke of the post 9-11 era when uh, I talked to a parks officer and I said, isn't it already broken? Oh, God. <laughs> Did he laugh? No. No, he was no, very no upset. No one was laughing that day. It was no, I was the only person laughing. And then we went to the uh, then we went to the meeting, and uh, pompously the uh, the the uh, the investor we were all watching on TV, and he pompously pushed away. We knew that we're fucked. It's over. This this is not going to happen. And he said, "No one will ever do business in New York again." And so that was the end of the thing. And I looked at him and I said, "With all due respect." That is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, people do business in Hiroshima. I was like, we lost two build two buildings. They were big ones. And at the time we thought like we'd lost tens of thousands of people. And you know, we've lost tens of thousands of people, but we have eight million of them. Um, you know, we have a lot more buildings. That is fucking stupid. And then um anyway, we sat there nevertheless and watched. And then uh, we made our way back to New York. It was really like stop and go. We ended up taking something called a SEPTA train to what's that? Uh, it's the Southeast Pennsylvania Transit Authority to Trenton. And then in Trenton, they said we have a train that's going as far north as Newark. We were just trying to get 
close. And they said that New York City was completely closed off. They had shut all the bridges and tunnels. There was nothing coming in and out. But, you know, we're New Yorkers and we know that like nothing's ever organized in New York City and it's impossible for them to do anything as radical for any length of time. So uh, we just figured the closer we got to New York, the better. And we got to um, we wanted to get back to our to our families. And uh, we got we made it on that train all the way up to to uh, what they call Penn Station, Newark, uh, in New Jersey, not far, you know, stone's throw from Manhattan. And uh, that there's something called the Path Train, which is the regional uh, subway that connects uh, like places like Hoboken and um, and uh, uh, Jersey City to to Manhattan. It's an old subway system, and they announced like we have one Path Train going into. You know, no fare, just go, go, go. And like they held the doors open. Everyone like bypassed the turnstiles and we jumped in and we were on the very first, as far as I know, the very first transportation conveyance allowed back into New York City. It was a path train that rumbled across the swamps and we came and we had an amazing view of ground zero as we uh, came. It was about four or five o'clock in the afternoon and uh, the, 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 the fire was still like raging and I remember the flames you could tell from the buildings next door by reference point were about 40 to 50 stories high. And it, the, everyone on the train was just completely silent, all on the right, all gathered on the right side of the train, just looking through the windows. It was hazy. The, the, the black, it was as black as black could get in terms of the, the smoke. It, we, it just, it, the sensation was like of a bombing. It really looked like a bombing. Well, see, and then, no one ever asked this question. I've always wondered because, I mean, like, I know it sounds crazy. I mean, this is one of my weird quirks. Mm-hmm. It's like, I always ask, if you went back in time, what would that yeah. smell like? If you were like a, a, a time traveler, oh, yeah. and you went back to the Revolutionary War, you would first off gag and probably puke yourself to death because people smelled so bad. So no one ever asks, how did that smell? You well, so... Out. I remember vividly. So, so first of all, um, if you're in New Jersey, the, the prevailing winds are, as in most of the United States, are from west to east. So you don't see, you, you don't smell anything that happens in New York from New Jersey. It's the uh, New York smells Jersey, not the other way around. <laughs> so, but we got so most of the wind blew toward Brooklyn. Uh, when I got out of the train, it was at uh, Herald Square, right next to Macy's at Thirty Third and Sixth Avenue, and there were. Um, it was there was a thin layer of dust, but most of the dust blew to Brooklyn, um, and there were policemen hanging around. There was a group of youths who sort of desultorily broke uh, a display window at Macy's across the street from the cops as the cops were watching, and the cops go and and a couple of the cops just like looked at them, and one of them was like looked at them and like, guys, really, and then they just sort of stopped, and then like walked away. Um, it was just very, there was a, there was a city bus that was just a Kimbo where, where it had just stopped. The engine was still running. The driver was gone. The door was open. He had just stopped and left. Um, and, uh, and there were just like a parade of, of fire trucks coming West from the Queens Midtown tunnel into Manhattan, every regional, Long Island fire company, you know, it's like Ronkonkoma, Patch Hog, um, every single municipality you could imagine was sending everyone they had into New York. And, but it didn't smell like much to me where I was until the next day. The next day, the winds shifted a little, a little to the north. And there was this smell that was like, you know, like 
when you were a kid, we're old enough to remember model train sets and the little, you know, like the elect, the smell of the electric box of the electric train. It was like this sort of like they weren't very well wired or something. It's like sort of a burning electrical smell. It was like burning modernity. Like it was like plastic, burning plastic and fiberglass flesh you know, just grossness and burning, like ele- burning electrical cords mixed with burning flesh smell. Um, it was a gross, very gross smell. Um, and uh, I, wa- I, wa- I did jog down to Ground Zero that the next day on, on 912 um, and looked across the street and everyone was gathered there. And there were people, you know, uh, basically shouting thanks to the first responders and cheering them as they drove and walked by. Um, and, uh, so you, you we gawked by, at the, we gawked at the pile from across the street and you went and you saw the fence with the, have you seen so-and-so and well, those, there was not just one fence. Um, that fence sort of became a thing later, but the first few days, those posters were all over the city. They were on lamp posts, subway entrances, bus stops, um, construction sites. And I remember just thinking they were very strange, um, you know, Why? it was like, well, because it didn't make any sense that there was a missing. Like, why would no one's missing? I mean, you know, if someone worked in the world near or at the World Trade Center and they didn't come home that day, anyone could plainly tell they were dead. No one could have been missing. Well, no, but the, at the time, especially the first few days, you could hope against hope that they were taken to a hospital, that they were, you know, stunned or whatever. Um I kind of get that. And if it's a loved one, you don't want to give up that, you know, you're, you know, yes. In the cold light of rationality, you'd go, sure. You know, there's no way anyone survived that. And if you saw the, 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 both the towers fall, the people who survived, you knew they survived the people who didn't, you knew they didn't. But for the first few days, I think you would hold out hope. And I, you know, I would probably put a picture up for Janine or for my kids and hope against hope. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, um, it was hard to watch that. This not in New York. I can imagine seeing it in person must have been very moving. It was very strange, um, you know. And so, like for about, you know, I would say for about two or three days, um, there was a sense of tremendous, like um, solidarity and sadness. Um, I, on, I took the subway home. After I, after the, you know, coming out of, uh, from 34th and 7th, I took the, the, the one train up. There was a truncated one service. And, um, I, uh, was sitting across the subway from a cop who was uh, plainly had been uh, at ground zero, was covered from head to toe. He was uniformed in, in dust. His hair was completely caked and he had next to him in his hand on the subway a, uh, three quarters consumed bottle of vodka. <laughs> and, now, uh, and I just looked at him and I was like, that's, that seems about right. <laughs> I, was, I, was talking to a friend, I was talking to a friend of mine. We were recently having dinner at his place and he's the former uh, photo editor for, uh, at the time, I think he was at the Atlanta journal constitution and the photos that came through and you and I have seen many of them that most of the public have not. And it's pretty gruesome. I mean, he won't watch any of the 9-11 stuff now because he saw all of it coming across his desk in real time. And so for those who think that everything was dust and debris, it was not. No, no, it was not. There are some pretty uh, – I was also on a 
my friend Patty Vasquez has a she has a Facebook show she does every Friday night. It's fun called Whiskey and a Cookie. <laughs> and so we started to talk about where were you during 9-11? These were Chicagoans. And mm. uh, it's fascinating to me that they cleared out downtown Chicago. I mean, they, they, oh, it they makes out sense. This- it's, I mean, Chicago is what the fourth largest city in the United States. And third. third, okay. You could easily see inexplicably after Houston. Um, but like, uh, no, 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 no. it's still, it still leads Houston. We're still ahead. Oh, wait, Houston. I thought Houston was second. No, it's fourth. So wait, so it's LA, yeah, uh, New York, LA, Chicago, Houston. And okay. I think Phoenix. Okay. I understand people living in Phoenix a lot more than I understand people living in Houston. Uh, yeah, you and me both. So, but yeah, I don't get it at all. But anyway, so what? So yeah, where? So where were you? I was here in Birmingham, Alabama. I was working at the Birmingham News. Um, I was getting ready to go to work. I used to drive in around ten, and um, I got a call from a friend of mine to tell me that a plane has been flown into the one of the one of the twin towers, and it was like, oh, that's you know, if no one in their right minds. It's so funny, funny. You know, well, it's kind of funny to hear news anchors at the time, especially New York news anchors say, well, is there a radar thing telling them to fly into these buildings and stuff? I go, it's a big honking building. No one does that by mistake. So the first one flew in there and I turned it on and literally, I'm like everybody, literally less than a minute after that, the second plane hit. And so, yeah, I just, I worked from home that day and did quite frankly, the same cartoon, everybody and their brother in the cartoon. Statue of Liberty. Crying. Yeah, no, it was, um, not in the smoke. Someone counted. There were 82 of those cartoons. I believe it. I, I, you know, I, there may have been more. Um, we, I mean, you do the best you can and that's what I did. And it wasn't, frankly, wasn't my proudest moment. It really wasn't, but it was the right thing to the right sentiment. I think there may have been better ways to do it. Our late great friend, John, uh, Mike Ritter, I thought did a better, if you're going to do that kind of cartoon, he did the, um, you see the legs of Uncle Sam and the stripes and it pretty much carps the, the two towers. Mm. And it said, you know, s- you know, still standing or something like that. Um, but let's 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 move this forward and talk about the aftermath of 9/11. Um you and I were talking just before we started recording about how how I wish it wasn't um you had the likes of Dick Cheney uh driving a lot of the the policy going forward and the problem with that was he was part of the Carl Rove the the ascending part of the Republican Party which was the take no prisoners part, right? So rather than bring the country together they used it to ace invade Afghanistan. Which You're was, with us or against us. Yeah. And the war on terror. And that meant domestically as well. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, Ted, you were certainly a victim of some of that because your cartoons right out of the gate were, were going, let's not be stupid. And of course, we were being stupid. The invasion of Afghanistan, which we learned 20 years later, was probably <laughs> a mistake. Um, the invasion of Iraq, which was. And which had nothing to do with 9 11 or no. very little. Let's put and it that way. I, you know, full disclosure here, people, um, my cartoons during the buildup and the actual invasion of Iraq was very much in favor of it. Uh, I regret yeah, that. But to your credit, though, you, you've admitted that, unlike most people who were who were on your side. And then also you've you've cartooned about it. You've admitted it like you've you know, I mean, look, anyone can screw up. I screw, I've screwed up many times. It's like but I mean, you know, you, you, we're expressing hundreds of opinions per year. They can't all be right. So, I mean, so like, we're going to screw up. 
Well, and here's the thing. I actually was on a panel at the University of Tulsa with uh, Bruce Plant, um, uh, 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 Mike Lukovich, and uh, Clay Bennett. And I showed the cartoon. Uh, this cartoon Ted is alluding to, I just was really a self explanatory. It's self explanatory. It was, um, you know, a multi panel cartoon just saying that I was wrong, that I was very much in favor, and then realized that I was lied to and I should not have supported the war. I use that as a way to ask the panel, Clay Bennett, especially, and, my, and um, Mike Lakovich, to say, have you ever are, made a mistake? Who are the cartoonists that's in Chattanooga and Atlanta, respectively. respectively? Yeah. And I, so I asked him, I said, have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever been wrong? <laughs> and the look on their faces, Ted, was just, dis- I mean, it was just like they were aghast. They were just like, how, how, how- dare you? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it really wasn't. What do you think it was a how dare you as in they don't think that they're ever wrong or that it goes runs counter to the pundit or political cartoonist's code to ever admit that you're wrong? I think both. I think both. And neither of them or all all three of them um, said, no, no, I don't think we have. I'm going, well, that's not frigging possible. I mean, you're a human being. Surely you've made a mistake. Yeah, unless you only made like two decisions in your life, in which case they could have both been right. So going forward, then then after following 9-11, we had – now this is where I really did turn. And this is where I think I came – how can I put this? I came to my senses, I guess. Uh, And that was the Patriot Act. And the fight – one of the first cartoons I did – That was very early, right? Wasn't that like October or November 2001? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I did a cartoon with – and I know you were – adamant about this, that they were going to use this to whittle away at civil liberties. And so I have Uncle Sam looking at the Constitution, and he's holding a pencil labeled security. And he's, he goes, where do I draw the line? And it's the age-old decision. It's, and, we're, and we're going through it today, which will... It's the Thomas about. Jefferson quote, right? Like, which is? He, well, something along the lines of... Uh, hey, Sally, you're looking hot tonight? <laughs> if you're, if you, you know, something about like if you give up, um, you know, if you give up your, if you give up, he who gives up freedom for, for, uh, for security ends up with neither security nor freedom. And that's exactly what happened. I, I've always been a First Amendment absolutist. I've always been, I mean, a, a, have as much freedom as you possibly can. So coming out of nine eleven, listen, I mean, and it, I, I mean. Ted knows this. And if you're listening to this, you probably know this too. The first thing that, uh, which is, which stuns me why Ted is still a statist. And um, we'll talk about that in a moment. We will. But you have things sure. like, do you remember just like less than a week or 10 days after 9-11, uh, the um, Congress allowed uh, uh, the FBI to have no, not a very limited number of non-warrant uh, eavesdropping um, uh, things you know they could yeah yeah within less than two uh, less than two weeks the fbi had surpassed the very conservative number by ten thousand wired yeah, and let's and let's not and let's put this into perspective for the older folks who remember watergate richard nixon was in deep shit for putting wiretaps on about 150 phones yeah so ten- total 10,000. And so then. And the Bush administration under the NSA ultimately ended up tapping all of them. Yeah. And then, well, now attach that. Now let's go to travel. Uh, the TSA, the biggest 
fucking joke in the world. Oh God. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, you know, I just flew recently. Yeah. And, and you know, it occurred to me, and this is a serious question. Couldn't we go back to the pre nine 11 world? I mean, would so would it matter? Like, for example, you know, you used to be able to bring your kid to the gate. Oh, you used what, to would, fr- what would be a problem now? You could still go through a metal detector with your kid, and then they're not going to let you board the plane because you don't have a boarding pass. So why not let you that far? Why not? Right. No, I can remember you. you was well, everyone can who's you know before and shoes. No, like the French, they don't make. I just flew back from France. The French, the French don't make you take off your shoes. Last time I checked, the planes aren't falling out of the sky. Um, you know, nothing happens. Most countries don't do it. And the shoe bomber himself never could have brought, even if he'd been successful, never would have brought the, the plane down. It's oh, that's not-, not true. Some of the tests on the amount of explosives he had in the shoes would have blown a hole in the hull. Really? I, I, that's, I had not read that. I read the opposite. Yeah. And then right. also, also another thing is non-binary explosives. I mean, binary explosives are fraud. Like the three point three ounce thing, like oh you know, God, the idea, that is such that's a bullshit. That's so preposterous. It's not that, possible. Do you no. know what you have? Do you know what you have to do? I read. Did I think you have to bring a drum on, right? Is that- you have to bring a drum and you have to titrate basically the the two items together over the course <laughs> of like forty five to seventy five minutes. So we and and here's the funny part: all um, binary explosives give off cyanide gas as a byproduct. So you have to go somewhere private, the bathroom. You have to go lock yourself into the bathroom for over an hour and hope that no one cares. Even, and, there's, and the flight attendants aren't pounding on the door for you to come the fuck out. And, while, and then when they finally do pry the door open, you're in there dead because from the cyanide gas. <laughs> so like literally, we should be able to go back to bringing our big gulps on the plane. And have yeah. no problem. And yeah. we, should, we should keep our fucking shoes on. And we should not have to take our laptops out. All of that is bullshit. We don't need to do any of that. We right. go back. I mean, okay, let's leave the box cutters, you know, at home. Like sharp objects in yeah. the check-in luggage. But let's go back to the pre-9-11 world. You know, we could. Nothing would happen. No, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more. But it's also this is governmental power, and this is where you're, you're, and this is where you. This can, is where you. Yeah, this is where this is the strong Scott Stantis libertarian argument. Where yes, this, this I'm on where, a little, I'm a little bit out on a limb here because this is government <laughs> abuse. This is like where once you give government a power, they never take it away, and they always take it ten steps further than it was ever intended to go. Um, and that's where the TSA, I mean, you yourself have admitted in conversations that the TSA is nothing more than like. It's a workfare. It's a workfare program. It's a workfare. And that explains the knuckleheads who work there. They grind. I mean, let's you. face it. If like we cared, if security, if this was the front line in the war on terror, we'd be paying these guys $150,000 a year to start. You'd get the America's best and brightest, like. Uh, yeah, I was a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> you know, like that's not who we got. No, you know? we don't. In fact, quite the opposite. And so when you mentioned that it's a it's a jobs program, I, and I started looking at these guys through that 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 gauze that that lens, and I'm thinking, God, he's right because these are just like. And what I'm saying is not facetious. It's literally, if you know what 
work. I mean, and Scott, I know you know what workfare is, but workfare is this Republican thing where basically it's like, okay, you get welfare. We, in some states, we make you work to. We have to hold some kind of shitty job in order to earn your your welfare, which kind of doesn't really make any sense because if you're earning it, it's a salary. But anyway, the point is, um, it's an actual work. TSA is an actual workfare program in a lot of states. So they okay. literally take welfare recipients who are, you know, to be charitable, may not have the best qualifications or the best or the highest level of education or maybe the best work ethic. Um, and they, you know, and, and they maybe some of them do, but, you know, not on average. So 20 years on from 9-11, what have we, what have we wrought? We've wrought the TSA. We've grown Homeland Security. We've well, we should, by the way, the Department of Homeland Security should be abolished. It's an unnecessary cabinet department, and it did not solve the problem that it was meant to solve, which was supposedly agencies weren't cooperating and sharing information with each other before 9-11, and that's why it happened. But that's still the case. Yes. <laughs> All this so, manpower and billions of dollars later, they nothing still don't has share information. They still don't. Because pe- that's human psychology. It's all turf wars. If yeah. you share information with each other in a bureaucracy, then you know you lose your power. Yeah, the hope was that there would be a central authority to to put all this information together from the FBI, from the CIA, from you know ATF. And there's all these other agencies, like in the intelligence community, that most Americans don't even know about. I like, know it's there's amazing. The D, there's the DIA. There's the there's something called like the Maps Agency, which is very important and secretive, but um, also there's I think there's like twenty, like basically CIA level intelligence agencies in the United States. And in terms of domestic spying, we continue to find out that the egregious nature of it, Ted just mentioned, they've, they effectively tapped everybody's phone. They effectively- And they record every phone call, every phone call. So now we're up here to 2021 and we're faced with a pandemic. Um, we're going to, uh, and given that government has grown, the executive branch has now, you know, executive orders are, which to me are the government most- has grown, but the services are getting, has, are getting worse. You can't, it takes longer to get through to a government agency. You're more likely to get disconnected. The person who gets, you get on the phone, if you ever do get them on the phone is less likely to be able to be able or willing to help you. Well, I bet if you're a defense contractor, you can get through like that. It's like, is it, it's like <laughs> President Biden. <laughs> it's just, because again, the defense budget continues to go up. And if given the nature of the war on terror, or if you're going to combat terrorism, you're not going to need an Aegis destroyer. An Aegis destroyer, by the way, is this top of the line destroyer that's stealth, that has this incredible radar system, and it also costs over a billion dollars a piece. By the way, it's well, kind of fun. Isn't the idea of a stealth like boat kind of funny? Because, like, you know, anyone could just fly over and see it. <laughs> well, but you can see an airplane, but we have stealth airplanes. It's supposed to not show off, show up on radar. Well, but, air, but airplanes often can fly so high that you can't see them, you know. Yeah. It's still, have you seen a stealth ship? They're weird looking. That that's, seems to be part of the stealth thing. Like, the planes look weird. Yeah. They Remember, have to the, the planes like look like a weird angles. paper airplane. So the radar bounces off of it. Um, mm-hmm. But don't you think they could just improve the radar? I don't know. Anyway, so we have an increase in defense spending that's exponential, still eats up 50% of the federal budget. Um, and now we're heading into, like I said, let's, because we, we, we wanted to touch on this. And there really is connective tissue here between 9-11 and what the Biden administration came out with this week. First of all, Joe Biden, pissed off Joe Biden is no more 
uh, salient or cognitive <laughs> than regular Joe Biden because he's still kind of like, I don't like cheese. Hot cheeses are <laughs> no hard cheese. My favorite is my favorite is like we've been patient, asking you to volunteer to do the right thing. So now that you haven't, we're going to force you to. Yes. I mean, so, that is an inherent contradiction, right? Because if you're really patient, not doing the right thing is a choice. Well, and it's, I think it's a legitimate choice. Let me read, can I read something to you? It's from the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Uh, they, they issued a statement on following the, um, uh, the mitigation plan. That's, uh, this, uh, two quick quotes. Well, by the way, we should, by the way, before we, I, I think it's important to just remind um, anyone listening here who has been living under a large rock this week that uh, the Biden administration has mandated that uh, anybody working for a business uh, with with more than 100 employees must get vaccinated. Um, all federal employees must get vaccinated, many state employees as well. So effectively, 80 million Americans are now under a mask mandate um, if they want to keep their jobs or they do have the choice of getting tested every week um, in order, you know, right, uh, PCR right. test, uh, which, by the way, doesn't seem very just parenthetically, that only tells you if you've had it within the last three days, it seems like it should be tw- twice a week. But these tests are really expensive and they're free to you because the federal government pays for it. So the federal government is effectively subsidizing the people who are choosing to get the uh, tests instead. But anyway, as okay, uh, the libertarian you. thing. Yes, thank you. So the Libertarian Party recently, I, you know, they, they can come out and be pretty kooky. So let's be clear. But for the most part, they've given, for me, they've given very... Clear. Not like the Republican Party, who is always no. on the side of reason and rationality. Oh, well, look at the Democratic Party. Let's uh, get rid of <laughs> We must dist- get rid of the internal combustion engine Oh, my today. God. And we're not even, we even going to talk about abortion, or are we? But maybe we will. But let's look at the social libertarian and the, so, and the you know, the, the libertarian views are, and the civil lib- libertarian views of what's going on and how this connects to 9-11. Okay. Libertarian Party this week issued this statement. Here's part of it saying, however, instead of offering solutions centered around innovation in healthcare or empowering local governments to determine what health policies work best for their communities, we witnessed a shocking assault on privately owned businesses, a weaponization of government agencies, and an all-out attack on our most precious rights as individuals. One more quote from this from the comment is, or from their statement, however, what is not up for debate is the right of bodily autonomy. Every individual should have the opportunity to evaluate the evidence and make the choice that they find best suited for themselves. Your response? I, I have a very hard time arguing with that. I mean, I have a, a friend, uh, Hiroshi Hamada. He's a friend from friend of friend of mine and a good progressive left wing uh, uh, sculptor. Um, and he posted something on Facebook that I that he talked about how a vaccination, um, uh, you know, is an act of violence. And what he means by that is, you know, you're literally stabbing the human skin and uh, injecting some kind of foreign substance into it. And that act of violence should be, by definition, all acts of violence should be voluntary. You know, like if you, like I, I voluntarily got the vaccine, I couldn't have gotten it fast enough. I was very enthusiastic, right, right. thrilled, as you know, yes. Scott. And I encouraged you. We, we both were on the same page on this. Um, so well, it's well, not, well, a, we're not anti-vax. For we're pro-vax. Speaking. Yeah. Can I say the anti-vaxxers, you're an idiot? Yeah. Well, yeah, you guys are dumb. And here's why. Because <laughs> COVID is extremely virulent. You're going to get it. There's a good chance it'll kill you. 
with the vax, even if the vax is dangerous, um, the vax might save you from co- the vax will save you from dying of COVID, but it might be dangerous later on. When I weigh those things with COVID will kill you or very likely could kill you or really fuck you up. Whereas the, the risk from the vax is not nothing, but it's much lower than the oh, risk it's not, that it's, it's mitigating. It's still pretty much nothing. I mean, anyone who's... Yeah, three like, people have died out of... Yeah, like, out I of think 70 million who've had the shot. I mean, come on. 200 million people, uh, Americans have yeah. had the shot. I mean, it's crazy. So I it's had... it's basically like, look, it sucks for the families of the people who died, but it's not... It's statistically insignificant. But Ted and I made this decision. We made it as friends together. Uh, my wife was also very much in favor of getting the vaccine because she, you know, has an IQ above room temperature. Right. Uh, and could see that this was something. The, the but it's still your stupid choice to make if you want to. Right. And so as far as the libertarian view and the civil libertarian view, I thought what the Biden administration by, you know, kind of leapfrogging the laws. This is where the left and the right, by the way, come together on this issue. Think? I think. Yeah, I think it's one of those issues where a lot of people on the left, they're skeptic. They're, they're afraid of big pharma, whereas people on the right are afraid of big government. Um, but, uh, you know, of course, the one, sometimes the, t- the two are one and the same. Um, in this case, they kind of are. And, um, you know, I think the skepticism is well-founded. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I think, the, you know, I, uh, there was a really good article, speaking of libertarian shit, in, in uh, the Washington Post by a guy who writes for Reason, um, the libertarian magazine. And he argued, and I think correctly, that the CDC had the right, had the right attitude, the right uh, policy earlier this summer when they said, hey, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to mask. And it's true that like masked people can still uh, transmit the disease. But if you're trying to weigh, like if you're trying to get more shots into arms, it seems to me like you want to incentivize people and say, look, you're going to have a better life if you're, you're um, you know, if like if we're if you get vaccinated and if you're not vaccinated, things are going to suck a little bit for you. You know, you're going to have to get tested all the time. You're going to be you know, it's going to be incentivized. Like saying like I'm seeing these signs like in the New York subway now, even if you're vaccinated, you must wear your mask. I'm like way to tell the unvaccinated people don't bother. Right. Yeah. No, it's all of this comes back to what we just discussed that the I hate to say this, but forces of evil. And they're going to use government and government fiat to interfere in every aspect of your life. It all started, well, it started way before this, but it's, it certainly got accelerated following 9-11. And so – It was a massive opportunity. I mean, I, you know, like it's, it is like the Reichstag fire in that, you know, look, Reichstag, everyone thinks the Nazis set the Reichstag fire. They didn't. It really was a Dutch anarchist. But no, it's really true. It's, it's, historians are, are pretty unified on that. The Nazis recognized the opportunity to like to launch to use it as a pretext yeah. to launch a crackdown, and that's what that's what the Bush administration did. I mean, they were kind of like floating and listless and 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 had no direction. No, before nine eleven, and they were like, "Holy shit, man! Could we go full spectrum, crazy ass right wing insanity?" Yeah, and they did. Um, the idea of and they uh, tore us apart. They fucking tore us apart. That's, and that's ultimately what happened is that we now versus when we could have been – and this isn't some willing, you know, peace, love, dope kind of a thing. This is actually saying we could have brought us together at least on this – We were life. for a hot second. 
Yeah, but then they decided- For a hot second, uh, you know, all my Democratic and socialist friends had American flags on their cars and, you know, in front of their houses. And- well, do you remember when Bush, uh, George W. Bush, addressed the joint session of Congress following the attack? And, um, oh, golly, what was his name? He was the... Um, Right. He was um, the, the Speaker of the House, the Democratic Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. gave him a hug when he walked in. Mm-hmm. They embraced. And it's just like, wow, this could be the era where we have a, a mutual enemy. And how do we fight it? But Yeah, like it, World War II. Yeah. Unfortunately, the um, the forces, and I do have to say the Republic on the Republican side, decided this was an opportunity to divide us, to gain political power, to use the government as a bludgeon against its enemies. And that has just continued to this day. In fact, you know, all the people who praise Barack Obama, he used and extended and elevated executive orders to a level that had never been seen before in our country's history. Not to mention he expanded Bush's drone wars. He expanded the NSA spying program. And in fact, Edward Snowden said that he was very, he expected things to change under Obama. And when they got worse, that's when he decided to step forward. So now where we go forward from here, we're getting um, near the end of the podcast. What I mean, going forward, did 9-11 give birth to uh, Donald Trump? I think that it's inarguable that the attitudes that began then, the fear mongering. The, the know nothingism. Yes. <laughs> Look at like, people. The fact, the fact, the factlessness, like just saying things that were just completely the new way of lying, right? Like that, like Richard Nixon could only have dreamed of, right? Like, yes. of, like, you know, it all became about what you left out. I mean, my personal favorite example, it's just because of the, I'm interested in the linguistic construction of it, but like Bush kept saying, well, Iraq has ties to terrorism. Saddam Hussein supports terrorists. He has ties to terrorist organizations. So every American who's working 60 hours a week hears that. And they think they're thinking, Oh, uh, Saddam Hussein has something to do with Al-Qaeda. But of course, Al-Qaeda was his enemy and he yeah, yeah. Uh, they were trying to overthrow him and he threw them in prison whenever he caught them. So that wasn't true. And what they were referring to in the Bush administration and the media was terrible about refuting was that uh, Saddam Hussein would provide money to Hezbollah in the occupied territories to give the families of Palestinians whose houses had been demolished by the Israelis. Uh, because they're, a family member was a member of Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, money. So, you know, in other words, he was financing the Palestinian resistance to Israel in the occupied territories. Now, regardless of whether you agree with that or not, in the post-9-11 context, that's not what Americans cared about. Americans cared about al-Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalism directed towards the United States. They did not care about the Israel Palestinian conflict. And so what the Bush administration was doing was deliberately dissembling and like sort of like churlishly um, lawyering some weasel words that sort of sounded and technically could be true in a sort of LA Times kind of way, but were not actually true, um, you know, in a way that like people would understand. And that's how how lying is done now. And Trump was the absolute master of it. Well, before we wrap things up here, I, I just uh, was watching TV this morning and there was uh, old George, former President George W. Bush speaking at Ground Zero. Ugh. Well, I wanted to ask someone like you who you were no friend of this that administration by no. far. 
by far. You had, I mean, some people have Trump derangement syndrome. You kind of had W derangement syndrome, kind of. Big time. Big no, time. Not I, th- I look back at some of those cartoons. I'm like, Jesus Christ, was I pissed or what? That's when you do your best cartoons. I got to say, for my cartooning career, I kind of bought the you know the the Bush administration line for the first like the first three years of his administration following 9/11, mm. uh, the invasion of Iraq, and then all of a sudden I I came to and said, oh wait a minute, this is using government to forward a really bad agenda and my cartoon well, wait what did did things turn for you when like wmds failed to turn up in iraq yeah of course of course yeah. and also this the, the assault the outward the, the un the unhidden the unmasked the unbridled attack on civil liberties for me civil liberties are the are the bedrock of what drives oh, so maybe you should be a little like what do you mean specifically like which Civil liberties. Like, oh, I mean, I there's so well, many things to choose from. There's, there are. Extra, there's extraordinary rendition, habeas corpus. Yes. yes. Um, the uh, Patriot Act was the beginning of the end for me because the military, like, don't forget the Military Commissions Act. Well, yes. There's which that. got rid of habeas corpus. Um, what they were doing down in Guantanamo and what they were doing. More, grab- more than Guantanamo, by the way. And you're not All tired. over. Yeah, they would actually contract out. Well, we really can't torture these guys the way we want to, but but we have friends who will do it for a fee. Yeah, Jordan, (laughs) all out Eastern Europe, especially Eastern Europe was what was it? Poland, right? It was. I think it was Poland and and Romania, Bulgaria, countries like that. Yeah, Thailand, they did it. So that's what kind of that's what there was even a, there was even a torture boat in the middle of the Indian Ocean, <laughs> like based in based at the U.S. Air Base in Diego Garcia. It sounds like a spinoff from the '70s show. Torture the boat, torture <laughs> boat, coming to take you away. Um, so stuff like things as as things progressed, and also the you're if you're not for us, you're against us, which is of course utter bullshit, and that's the utterances toxic. Of, yeah, it's it's that's the utter utterances of a, of a fascist, and that's true. Um, how you silence people. So, if you saw George W. Bush today, and you could do anything you wanted to, what would you do, Ted? <laughs> well, he should be executed for war crimes. Um, I would give him a trial first, uh, a fair trial, something that he did not give to tens of thousands of people um, in his under his control, and uh, uh, he. I would not torture him because. And I, I guess I would not execute him because, um, you know, I don't believe in the death penalty. But uh, I do think he deserves to go to prison for the better part of the rest of his life um, because he lied to the American people. He uh, sent uh, thousands of U.S. troops uh, to their deaths while killing hundreds of thousands uh, of innocent people in other countries. He, you know, he, he's a war criminal of the highest order. He's a monster. He's a terrible human being. Everything that everyone who had any position of significance in that, in that administration is a criminal in my opinion and should be in prison. Okay. Well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I think that I don't have an issue when they set up panels, when they set up investigations, for instance, you know, the investigation for what happened on the Capitol on January 6th, you know, Republicans mm. come out against it. Um, now they're screaming that they want panels to investigate what happened in Afghanistan and the withdrawal there. Um, I don't have a serious significant issue with either one of those. I think right. we have to continue to reevaluate because if you don't, then you're doomed to repeat it. And yeah, have to have the after action report. So when it comes to George W. Bush, I think it's reasonable to say, was he guilty of war crimes? I mean, I'm not convinced of that, but I could be. 
if there is an actual fair trial. Well, he legalized torture. I mean, he literally was in the, he doesn't have plausible deniability because he was in the room with Cheney and Rumsfeld when they talked about what they wanted to do in terms of enhanced interrogation techniques. Right, but they could also make the argument that those were extraordinary circumstances, and that's what necessitated the need for torture. I'm saying the, that's the argument. Well, no, I'm sure that is, that is exactly the argument. Um, no question, you know, but it's like, uh, but it's even, I'm going to say that like, even if torture, I always think that whether torture works or not argument is stupid. Let's just say that it worked. It's still illegal under American and international law. We've signed the, the convention against tor- uh, torture. Uh, therefore that it's a treaty obligation that has the full, full force of federal law. So it's illegal. You know, I mean, whether it works or not, it's illegal. Right. But, it's, but they, it's a, so it's a war crime by definition. Don't forget, that, don't forget they danced around it by saying we're not doing it on American soil. Which is also, it's sophistry. I mean, Guantanamo is American soil. I mean, it's not Cuba, right? Can the Cuban police, look, every place on the planet belongs to someone, except I guess some parts of Antarctica. Um, well, but like Russia is trying to muscle in on that, but right. Well, you know, it's just, it's just lying around doing nothing, melting away. Um, might as well get that shit now. But, but it's like, uh, you know, I mean, so clearly every part of the Island of Cuba belongs to someone, either the Cuban government or in the case of Guantanamo, the United States government. And like, when you, it's like this, like we rent it, right. We rent it from, yeah from from the Castro regime or actually you know the former Castro regime so what do we you know so if you re- like if i i'm renting my apartment now so if can i torture people in my apartment because it's not on american soil because i rent it like no it's like the us rents it it's part of the us well i think and we just they made control the point it. earlier that the united states was definitely culpable uh, for torture and as i mentioned earlier they also what torture they didn't commit they hired out so well, not to mention also we tortured on american soil decidedly i mean you and i have a have a colleague um you know who you remember um oh, the yes. female colleague who lives in brooklyn um and uh she and her husband's a cartoonist too and i don't think i've ever told you the story i may have oh. but um the the brooklyn house of detention the brooklyn detention center bdc was supposedly closed um at the time of the um early days of the war on terror and she would complain because when she had her windows open, she, hold, she heard all sorts of screaming and carrying on coming from ne- the building next door. But that was supposedly closed, the, for the Brooklyn jail. Turns out it was a black site used for torture of Arab detainees in Brooklyn, which Brooklyn may seem exotic, but it's part of the United States. <laughs> so, and it, and it, you can look that up. And it's like, it's, it was horrifying when it came to light what had been going on there. Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean to make fun of people being tortured, but I've heard the, I saw the videos from when the uh, subways were flooded mm. and I'll never forget. This was what, two weeks ago in a New Yorker, really New Yorker voice. And they, the, the, the tunnel, the, the, you know, where you stand, where the trains come in, it was literally yeah. flooding. You could literally watch the water rising. <laughs> And so the people are rushing up the stairs and you hear this guy clear as a bell saying, God damn it. I missed my stop. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't grateful. He was alive. He wasn't great. No, he was just pissed. (laughs) He's going to have to walk six blocks. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if maybe that was it. Anyway, okay. On that note, um, we're going to talk about civil liberties more going forward as they're becoming more and more, you know, just quaint ideas versus ideals, I guess. Because we don't stand up for them. We don't do anything. No. Well, we have no to- We have to talk about this. 60% of Americans don't think freedom of speech is essential. True. Well, I'm surprised it's actually that low a number. Americans don't really care about these things. And we have no torture. Of re- we have no torture. We have no culture of resistance in this country. We're not doing shit to stand up for ourselves. I mean, just think about like the 60s and 70s. We don't do anything. There's no protests for anything, really. But there's a I Facebook. Mean, Black Lives Matter was the only thing. There's a Facebook page. Yeah, that's true. Very exciting. And by gum, my TikTok. Yeah. Woohoo. <laughs> TikTok. Hey, listen, everyone. Thank you for listening to this edition of the DMZ America podcast. I'm Scott Stantz coming to you from the right. You can check out my work at gocomics.com slash Scott Stantz or gocomics.com slash Prickly City. And especially go to counterpoint.com and check out not just my cartoons, but this guy's cartoons. Thank you, Scott. And uh, I, I'm, this was really fun, by the way. Uh, uh, you can check me out on my website, rawl.com. I have a cartoon on whowhatwhy.org. And I'm at sputnik.com doing a cartoon twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays most times. Okay. Till next time, we'll see you in the funny papers. Bye, Scott. Bye, Scott.